I'm Dr. Megan Corredo, and welcome to Real Stories, a podcast that features the narratives of trauma survivors, professionals, and community leaders. Real Stories provides a platform for guests with diverse life experiences to voice and honor their unique narratives. During today's episode, we will be speaking with Bonnie Lynn Martin. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's it's a pleasure to be here. So tell us a little bit about who you are. Well, I'm 54 years old. I'm a mother. I'm a grandmother. I'm a sister. Mm. I'm a friend. I'm a lover. I'm a preacher's daughter. I was born in Bayonne, New Jersey in 1966. When I was two, um, my family moved to Washington, D.C., and, and um, then we had a home in Maryland. So I was raised in Prince George's County. But if anybody knows anything about the area, like the District of Columbia, Maryland, and Virginia are all within a mile of each other. And so I'm kind of a child of the DMV. I was raised in all three of those places all the time. And um, I love food. I love theater. I love uh, I love live theater, and I love art museums. I love to read, um, and that's a little bit about me. Okay, tell us about what you do. Uh, th- I'm in my second career right now. Um, my first career, I was a high school English teacher, uh, American and British literature. And um, I did that for about 15 years, and I am now in my second career as a psychotherapist. I'm a licensed professional counselor and licensed and um, a counselor supervisor in the state of Virginia. And I have a private practice, um, and that private practice allows me also to do consultation and training for agencies, uh, both government and non-governmental agencies that work in the field of human trafficking and exploitation. Mm. So uh, what what created that shift between being a high school English teacher, um, a British and American literature to a psychotherapist? You know, I think I get asked that a lot. And it's, um, to me, it was such a seamless journey. Uh, the field of trafficking, I will talk about a little later, but just this journey from being an English major to an English teacher, to a school counselor, to a licensed professional counselor. I think when I was very, very young, my earliest memories, I, I fell in love with stories. My mom would take me to the public library. And I remember carrying my little cloth bag. And it was the highlight of my childhood was when my mom would take me to the public library and I would fill my bag with these stories. Mm. And I would go home and I would read these stories over and over and over again. And I just fell in love with stories and storytelling and the characters in the stories. And and I think the conflict of the characters in the stories and the resolution of those stories. And so I, I wasn't a great student, to be honest. Um, when I was, I was kind of lost in the shuffle of my family and my community. And it was when I, um, I, started reading literature in middle school and, and high school mm. that I, it just was the most comfortable that I was ever in school. So that just led me uh, into majoring in English. Mm-hmm. And then I always knew um, I, I had this knack, even when I was a child uh, for some reason, people would just talk to me and 
um, tell me things about their lives. They would tell me their story. <laughs> and so when you're very, we're young, a teenager in, in young adulthood, and I'm, people are telling me their stories, um, it, it just seemed this natural fit that I always knew that I would transition from teaching English into psychology. It was something I knew very early on, and that's what I did. Hmm. It's such an interesting thing too, like the the fact that stories or narratives like kind of unite these two professions. Um, it, it's really amazing and also transformative to think about like all the stories of adversity, but then all of the stories of strength and resilience and people getting back up again, and they're evident in both in both fields. That's right. I mean, the early, every single child book is about adversity and resiliency and connection. And, um, and so, you know, I just see psychology really is just the telling of a story. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just a, got flesh and bones on it instead of a binder and a book and pages. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So every individual, every community, every system has a story and every story includes both adversity and strength. Can you tell us about some of the adversities that you faced? Yeah. Um, I, I grew up in a home. My mom and dad were children of alcoholics. And this was, um, you know, before we really had the kind of access to psychology that we have today. Mm-hmm. Uh, my parents just did the best they could to survive their stories, but their stories very much impacted my story. Um, Three out of four of my grandparents were alcoholics. Mm. My dad from the inner city in New York, in New York, and um, his father was an abusive alcoholic and tried to kill him a number of times when he was a young man growing up. Yeah, I think my dad tells one story where he was in his teenage years, 14, 15, and every night he would go to bed and he would um, write a note and say, if I died tonight, my father killed me. And he would mm. date it and sign it and put it in his dresser drawer. And he would sleep with an open switchblade under his pillow in case his father came in his room in the middle of the night. Mm. Um, so, you know, he's an Italian immigrant family. And um, my father definitely, uh, to overcome that kind of adversity, um, impacted our entire family. And my mom's mom and dad were both alcoholics um, out in Covington, Indiana, just a small rural community. And my mom and dad actually met in college in New York City. They were working um, with an organization that was reaching out to gangs and drug addicts and alcoholics. Mm -hmm. And what happened was my mom and dad just dedicated their entire lives and their careers to working in the field of drug and alcohol rehabilitation and behavioral health. Now they didn't have any training. So they were, they were lay people. So it was, it meant, it meant for a very interesting childhood, but you know, my family, you can see from generation to generation, how we've tried to overcome uh, what came before Mm. us. Uh, So I think that that general environment of my family the, the struggle was always there. And then when I was born, I was actually born premature. I was born the third child within three years. And my mom was unconscious when I was wow. born. And um, I was put in an incubator. And for about two weeks, uh, back in that time, 1966, they didn't know what they know now about premature babies and touch. Mm. And so I, you know, my first 
couple of weeks devoid of that real human touch and connection to my mom. And then when I, when I did get out of the hospital, within that year, my mom came down with tuberculosis and was very sick. So she was sick on and off I mean, my earliest years. Um, and, and I think as I, because st- I study now neuropsychology and I teach neuropsychology, my practice is mm-hmm. based on neuropsychology and what we now know, right, about the human brain and the body and, uh, and attachment theory and what it, the adversity that a child has to overcome, an infant has to overcome with that kind of beginning right. has been, it's been really interesting for me to understand that in terms of right. myself. It's such this interesting yeah. <laughs> parallel process that happens yeah. as clinicians. Yes. Like we're reading things, we're learning about things, we're we're teaching others about things. And then there comes this point where we're like, oops, um, yeah, yeah. That oh, yeah. I need to do some work here. <laughs> Right. And, and then it, it's just the enlightenment, like, oh my goodness, that thing about myself makes so much sense mm-hmm. now. Right. Like I have, a, I don't breathe uh, deeply. My breath is always shallow. And no matter how much I've tried to correct that through my life, it's just there. And I think as I was doing some of the study, I realized that probably has its origin in, my, in the earliest memory of my existence, mm. um, the struggle to breathe mm. in an incubator with the lungs that weren't fully developed. Mm. So, <laughs> um, so let's see, that, that was early childhood adversity. And then during my adolescent years, my mom and dad ran a drug and alcohol rehab in uh, one of the hardest parts of D.C., during which time is like the murder capital of the country, Washington, D.C. was, was crack cocaine and kind of swept the Northeast Corridor. And my parents, because they weren't highly trained, uh, Work came home with them and we went to work. Actually, my grandmother worked in the rehab. And so going to grandma's house was going to this residential program. And there would maybe be drug addicts and, uh, you know, women that were in need of of assistance and help um, sleeping downstairs in the basement. I mean, it was just a family Mm. affair. So there weren't, it was just hard, right? I wasn't of the streets, but I was in them all the time. And my, my formative years, I had this deep understanding of poverty and crime and injustice and, um, and Mm. darkness, just that dark, dark world of drugs and alcohol and, uh, kind of forced, uh, what it forces people to do, what it forces them to become and the choices that they make and how it destroys someone. And that was like front and center my entire, my entire wow. adolescence. Is that uh, as early yeah. as you can remember? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. My dad, when we moved to DC, that's when he started the rehab. So I was mm. only two. So, um, and they, my mom and dad spent 50 years, their entire careers starting these programs, not just uh, nationally, um, in Florida and San Francisco, New York City, DC, but also, in, you know, internationally, and these centers called Teen Challenge are just all over the country and all over the world now. Um, but it, the interesting thing, little adversity I had to overcome in the midst of all of this too, was it was a religious, religiously based organization, which is wonderful because faith really helps people. Unfortunately, it kind of took this form of, um, you know. The, the message, whether implicitly or explicitly, was that women didn't really need to get an education. Mm. So 
I was, I went off to Bible college um, <laughs> because that's what we did. And I ended up dropping out because I just, it just didn't hold my interest. And I really just wanted to be an English major. But what that set in motion was some of the greatest adversity of my life. It was communicated to me that was an acceptable thing to do. I got married at 19 and dropped out of college. And um, it was a long journey. It, it took 10 years for me to get my bachelor's degree. And I had children and I was studying to Sesame Street and not every single dime of my education I had to find myself. So um, that was a lot to overcome. And I think when people see me now or they hear me speak or they come to my office and they see all the, all the degrees, uh, there's this mm. backstory of how hard it was for me to um, to just get that that first degree and what obstacles I faced getting it. Uh, and then in 2000, um, I ended up leaving that marriage. When I was 19, I got married. I was so young and, and it just was a really bad experience from the beginning. And 15 years into it, I had to get out. And in one day I, I just lost everything and I became um, a homeless single parent and fighting for custody of my children. And uh, that that was that was a really hard time, and I think for a lot of you know when I was in it, I thought there's no way I'm ever going to mm. survive this. But I think that that experience of adversity is why because I I specialize in complex trauma now. It's not right. just book knowledge. It's not it's not just something that's coming from uh, academia or an internship, there's this lived, lived experience that I have that when I was facing this great adversity that I couldn't even get out of bed in the morning. I didn't, I didn't think I was ever going to, to make it all out on the other side. And, um, and to look back now, if somebody would have told me, this is who you're going to be uh, 20 years later, I never would have mm -hmm. believed them. And so when I work with my clients, I think this, there's, this, the, there's this, uh, Ernest Hemingway called the iceberg principle, right? That he wrote based on this iceberg principle that what you read of his novels is one third of his knowledge. Two thirds of his knowledge is this power underneath the surface. And I think that my experience with, with that particular adversity, uh, when the opposition was so great and when I just didn't have the strength, just, it was a, just day by day surviving um, that that knowledge and who I am today is that two thirds. So when I have a client in front of me, and there just seems to be no answers and there's no fixed, it's just pain. And there you see you sense the hopelessness and the despair and the exhaustion. Um, I think that there's this deep deep power inside of me of this of this experiential knowledge of hope that if I can do it this person sitting in front of me mm -hmm. can do it and um yeah isn't it amazing how many different strengths we have but then all of the things that like you're mentioning that lie underneath the surface some of the things we don't even speak about but we're but we're still able to keep surviving yeah. Yeah. And, and I think the powerful thing is nothing gets wasted, right? It, it, when, if we allow ourselves to, 
to find the resiliency within and without, it's not wasted. So all that hardness, all of the things I've been through, it's, it is this iceberg. It's beautiful and it's powerful. And nobody really sees what's underneath. But it is the, it is the power of, of how I do what I do. And, and even who I am, that I can't be shaken, right? That I'm not going to, I'm not going to be flipped upside down um, by adversity now because I've got this, this mm-hmm. breadth and depth of of strength that's mm-hmm. underneath. Mm-hmm. Can you share a few important positive moments or turning points in your story? Oh yeah, I think that you know what I was sharing um, when I when I was in high school because I, I just felt pretty lost. And um, it was just directionless. I don't know. I was being tossed and turned every which way by whatever was happening at the time. And I think I just didn't have any kind of grounding or focus. And in 1981, I was sitting in an English teacher's class and she introduced Romeo and Juliet. And I I remember everybody else (laughs) in the class groaning at what we were trying to do. And something, I looked down at the page and I started reading and and everything made sense to me. And I think it was just one of those most powerful moments of my life where I felt like I understand this. Mm-hmm. Like I get this. And um, so that was a, it was a pretty powerful moment for me. It was the first time I felt not just adequate, but that there was, there was something that I understood that I could contribute. And then, um, I, you know, I dropped out, I told I dropped out of college more than once because of this marriage I was in and moving and having children. And I, education was always so important to me. And I just, I just was, I couldn't, I couldn't get it done. And I sat in front of a, um, an old friend who was actually a sociology professor and, you know, I was struggling and I was a young mom. I had two little kids and I was in this marriage and I, and it was just, I was struggling so much and I had to sit down with him and we just started talking. And by the end of it, and it was just a very short conversation, but at the very end of it, he just looked at me and he said, Bonnie, go back to school. And, um, I don't know. I, something clicked that day and I went, I was going at the time to, I I lived on the Eastern shore and I was trying to get all my credits transferred and university of Maryland, Eastern shore actually allowed all my credits to be transferred. So I ended up at UMES. I ended up on a young mother's scholarship there and, um, got my tuition paid for and finished my bachelor's degree. What was that like for you to finish? (laughs) Oh, it was, it was amazing. Like I, you know, it was so amazing. It was 10 years from the time I graduated high school to the time I graduated from college. And, uh, you know, I had these, my two little girls by my side and it was just a great sense of accomplishment. And most importantly, it allowed me to be financially independent for when I did need to leave that marriage. I was able to right away, I got a job teaching in the public school system and uh, it was the empowerment that I needed, not, not just psychologically, Hey, I finished school, but you know, it was what allowed me to, you know, save myself when I needed to. Um, and then to, to that point, right. The next really important event in my life, I was in the midst of that trauma. I had, I had left, I was homeless. I lost everything. And one day I threw my kids in the car with the cat, borrowed a hundred dollars from a friend and Mm. had to rebuild my life. And I was, uh, it was just a very, very dark time. 
and I was in a custody battle for almost two years. And it was in the midst of that, that I was, um, I had gone on a trip to South Africa in 1999, um, just prior to, to me leaving. And I think the, the South Africa trip in 1999 kind of gave me some strength too, but I was working with gangs in South Africa and, uh, and the adversity there and understanding the dynamics and being introduced um, just marginally to the world of human trafficking and sex trafficking, I started to get a vision for what I wanted. What If I thought I'm in this much pain, you know, and I'm seeing these people in this much pain, like I, I came to this realization as I was there working with all of these nonprofits that they just didn't have any training. And so I was there to do part of a training, but it kind of lit a fire inside of me that, you know, I, I wanted to give the very best that the mental health field had to people who were doing the hardest work on the planet. And so that became that vision for that second career. It took another like eight years, but it was the vision started then. And then in, I went to India in 2001, um, the same kind of organization, the camp, same kind of setup working with uh, women who were sold into the sex trade in Mumbai. And you know, I just, I just remember this feeling of there's a language mm-hmm. to suffering and it doesn't matter what gender, what color, what race, what nationality, that when there's deep, deep suffering, it's like you're, you're in this pit, right? And you become a pit dweller. And then when you, maybe you're out of the pit, you never, the pit never quite leaves you. And when you're walking through life and you meet somebody, there's almost this resonance without sometimes even a spoken word of people who've had deep mm. suffering in their life. And, you know, so the culmination of those trips to South Africa and India is what set me on the trajectory to go back for my master's degree and just study the best that the mental health field had in trauma and, um, and prepare mm. for my second career. So all of those things, I think, were really pivotal. And then you also trip. then developed your own model, right? That was, yeah. So um, in 2001, I went to India. And then, you know, really, honestly, I was burnt out. I was just, uh, there was just, I was tired. I was very, very tired. And so I took some years, my girls were in middle school and high school. And I took some years to really just take care of my family. And, you know, when I talk to young people now, people who want to get into the field, or they want to, they're in social work, or they're in the field of psychology and counseling. Um, often I'll, I'll, they ask mm-hmm. me to talk about burnout and, uh, and the stress of the work. And, and it is very stressful. And I always encourage people to, you know, to make sure you're investing in, in your family and the people around you who can mm-hmm. then pour into you. And I think it was one of the important decisions I made at the time was I pulled back um, and just really focused on my family and raising my girls. I taught at the high school where and middle school and high mm-hmm. school where they went, where you went. And, um, and then prepared myself to go into the field. And so I dropped them off to college in 2007, one right after the other, and immediately got on a plane and flew to Swaziland. And that began um, eight years of traveling to 15 countries. And in that 15 years, just conceptualizing human trafficking, particularly sex trafficking and complex trauma and the experts in the field and how do we approach individuals who've had this history. And so the model that I developed came from that 
eight years of study, of traveling, of um, experiential work. And I, I never set out to design a model. Um, but when I came home, I, I started getting asked, could you come and just tell us what you do and how you do it? And so uh, that's how the model came about. And then I met my mentor and dear friend, Dr. John Arden, who was doing brain-based therapy. And everything in brain-based therapy was just this seamless fit into mm -hmm. the model that I had developed. And so that's how the brain-based approach of um, working mm -hmm. in complex trauma came about. And, it's and how would people um, find out more about how to receive training or learn more from you about your model? Yeah, I think the best thing right now, I'm, I'm in the midst of um, designing a website. I'm, I've been so busy with work that I try to stay under the radar <laughs> as much as I can. But I do realize now the importance of, uh, of making sure that uh, I'm not just doing the work myself, but I'm teaching other people to do it. So probably the best way to find me right now is to do a Google search of Bonnie Martin LPC Psychology Today. And there's and you can email me through the Psychology Today website. Uh, hopefully in the next couple of months, okay. I'm going to have my own web website up. At which time, if I do, I'll let you know and you can just... Sounds Pass good. And you're also providing trainings all over the country. Do you do things internationally now or are you staying mostly here? I'm staying mostly here. Um, the travel after eight years of travel, right. it was a lot. And, you know, there's really, there's never been funding um, for, you know, the work that I, that I started to do. Um, the trafficking field has really grown a lot. Uh, and now nationally, there's a lot of funding or a lot of grants. And so I go and I do a lot of trainings for agencies Um there are there's at least one open to the public training mm -hmm. that I do every year in June at uh, Divine Mercy University, and they have it's an organization called the Green Cross, and it's mental health professionals who are kind of like the Red Cross, but it's all mental health. And so every year in June, I'll do an open training for them. Uh, but the best, yeah, you, my email you can email me through Psychology Today at this point and. Um, it's just amazing to hear about all the different things that um, you have been able to contribute um, to the trauma field and providing support to trauma survivors. And then also to know um, kind of the backstory behind your own experiences, the doubts and the traumas that you experienced and how you were able to overcome that adversity to then get to a point like to a place where you may never have even imagined that you would get to that point, but then being able to look and say like, this is where I started and this is where I am now. Yeah, that's right. And I think what's so interesting is I, I don't think I ever put the personal and the professional together. I just thought, oh, I'm going to study trauma and I'm going to do this and I'm going to help these people. It, and then all of a sudden I'm looking at my own life and going, girl, right. you need to look at yourself. <laughs> so it was really an interesting moment where I realized that the very thing that I – set out to do for other people, I was every bit as much in need of mm -hmm, and walking mm -hmm. through myself. Um, I think it's really about like, it's, it's not a us versus them situation when we're providing support to trauma survivors. It's really about us all being in this together. And none of us have all the answers figured out. But you know, hopefully we can feed off of one another's strengths and offer something to each other. But um, I see a lot of people like taking this uh, us versus them approach. And it's like, it's really baffling to me because it's like, you realize that most of us yes. have been through trauma. 
Yes. I, I teach in my training that it is imperative in the relationship when you're working with somebody who has trauma for there to be mm-hmm. no power differential. Um, it is, you're a facilitator. I, I, I say when people ask me what I do, that I'm a keeper of the story. And in my office, I hold space for the pain. And there's mm-hmm. no power differential. Actually, the, the client sitting in front of me, mm-hmm. they are the author of their story. And my job is, you know, I, I tell my clients all the time, look, my only job is for you to, you look in the mirror, I, you know, and you don't like what's looking back at you. Mm-hmm. Let's work on that, right? You look around your life and you don't like the life mm-hmm. you're living. Let's work on that. Um, you know what you mm-hmm. want to see when you look in the mirror. You know what kind of life you want to be living. Right. I don't know. That's not my job. You know, my job is to come alongside you and to hold space for anger and grief because in trauma, nothing is more appropriate to right. feel than anger and grief. And in society, we shut those mm-hmm. emotions down so quickly. I think so many more people would uh, overcome trauma uh, more readily and be more resilient if our society um, did not shut down mm-hmm. anger and grief so quickly. Their emotions were so uncomfortable with. Right. We're just like, don't be sad. Don't be angry. Don't be sad. Don't be angry. No, let's be sad and angry. And as we allow that sadness and that anger, um, give it a voice, give it a platform. It's amazing how our spirit can be released Absolutely. from some of the And pain. I think, oh, go ahead. I, I, tell, um, I tell people too, my training, it's, it's totally fine to be drawn to this work from your own experiences of adversity. But what is not okay is mm-hmm. if you don't do the hard work yourself, right? If, if, you, if, you, if you're working out of your hurt and not out of your healing, then you may not hurt the other person, but you're definitely mm-hmm. going to continue to hurt yourself. And, um, and I know when colleagues or my trainees are healthy, not by what they tell me, but I want to talk to their family mm-hmm. members and their friends. <laughs> And they're, they're people who are closest to them. They're the ones that are better, um, they're better suited to say, yeah, you know, they have good boundaries. Yeah, they, they have, they sleep well, they exercise, they eat well, they take good care of themselves. I don't want you talking to my friends and family then. (laughs) I think the other really interesting thing to go back to something that you said is making sure that our clients are the authors of our own stories and also paying attention to that control dynamic. Um, I don't, I don't know why um, some helpers think that they're helping people by like grabbing the pen out of people's hands and saying, I'm going to write your story the way that it needs to be written instead of saying, here is the pen, here's the book. I'm holding a safe space for you. Now let's work on this together. Yeah. Well, I think there's this word should, right? You should or you shouldn't. And that really comes from control, either individual control, society's control. I tell people in my trainings that um, helping is oftentimes just control Mm -hmm. with a smile on its face. Mm. And that's a hard word for helpers, right? Right. Um, And I think a lot of people just have to be taught and trained how to sit and allow someone else to take the lead and take control and still feel like they're a vital part of the process and they're still doing something. It's a doing something that looks very different than Mm -hmm. taking control. 
And it's not powerless. We're not just sitting there passively by. Um, but, you know, there's, there are skills to facilitating somebody in their journey right. and their healing. So where do you see yourself in the future? What is your future vision? I think that's a good segue. I, I am 54. I feel like I'm in these, you know, what do I want the next 15 to 20 years? And I think I'll be working all the way up through that. Uh, I'd like to do more mentoring and teaching, I think, you know, uh, this idea of everything that I've learned and everything that I've done, just teaching it so that it can be replicated, so that it can be reproduced, so that it can be utilized by young clinicians mm -hmm. um, just coming into the field or young social workers or, you know, even lay people, paraprofessionals. So I, I see myself doing more, more of that. And I love teaching. So I, I would love to mm -hmm. figure out how to do more teaching. I, I also went out there on the limb years ago and developed a nonprofit for the children of um, mm. trafficking survivors as a scholarship fund. And so the fund both will provide scholarships to the children of trafficking survivors and also provide therapy for the survivors themselves. So to me, it was like if, if I had a swan song at the end of my career, being working in the trafficking field for 20 years, like what all the things that I've learned that the energy and the effort for me, I would, I want to pour into breaking the cycles of poverty and mm. pain in a family. And many of my trafficking survivors don't have a lot of education. They don't understand the educational system. They have children. Many of them had children in, mm. in, while they were being sex trafficked and they love their children dearly. And many of these children of trafficking survivors are, are very high functioning, um, some of them parentified children, but they, uh, to me, the such a lasting mm. intervention in the system is to provide an education, uh, scholarships for associate's degrees or bachelor's degrees or culinary school or electrical, mm. you know, school, um, to, to just give that very practical help mm to a child who has the ability and the desire, but doesn't mm -hmm. have the resources. And, and it's kind of right. redeeming the story for the mother, right? This is the redemption of the story. This is that this child receives this mm -hmm. scholarship because mm -hmm. of her story. Are there any favorite or life-changing resources that you want to share with listeners as we begin to close our conversation? Yeah, you know, I think... Um, I'm reading this uh, book right now because I love stories, right? And I love literature. I'm reading a book called, uh, let me find it, um, The Novel of the Century by Dave Bellows. And he's a Princeton professor. And the, the book is about the novel Les Miserables, um, Victor Hugo's Les Miserables, that was written in 1862. And Les Miserables has been an international bestseller almost since its publication. And it's a, it's an interesting story of poverty and revolution and um, injustice mm -hmm. and social classes. And as I'm reading the story in light of what's happening in our country right now. It just, it's so relevant. And I think this, it's funny when I used to travel internationally and I was in the most stressful moments 
I was in some godforsaken place, sleeping on a mattress that's one inch or bathing out of a trash can that's filled with rainwater or, you know, on the back of a motorbike. When I was in my most stressed state, I would put the soundtrack of the Broadway mm. musical Les Miserables on my phone. And of all of the, the novels I've ever read, it emerges always as the most beautiful story mm -hmm. of grace and redemption. And, you know, there's this, the character Jean Valjean was a convict and it pits him throughout the novel against Javert, who's the police officer who is just about doing what the law says. And so in, in light of what's happening uh, in our country today, mm -hmm. you see this tension. And at the end of the novel, um, Victor Hugo, he writes, the book which the reader has before him at this moment is from one end to the other in its entirety and details, a progress from evil to good, from injustice to justice, from falsehood to truth, from night to day, from appetite to conscience, from corruption to life, from bestiality to duty, from hell to heaven, from nothingness mm -hmm. to God. A starting point, matter, destination, the soul the hydra at the beginning, the angel at the end. And so I think that, you know, this, this novel and the messages of it continue just to resonate with me. Um, and it brings together, you know, all, all of my, my life uh, interest, this interest in storytelling, and then the trauma work and working with people who are in just dire mm -hmm. need of grace and facing incredible injustice, uh, the letter of the law and the corruption of the heart who is just bent on control and this struggle of not just Jean Valjean, but the entire people group in the novel, um, the, the miserables, right? The, the miserable ones, the low ones, uh, the musical itself, the very last lines of the last song, the lyrics are, do you hear the people sing? And, you know, I, I went to DC last, uh, over the last month or so, um, just marching, marching one out one wow. day. I think I was out for 10 hours with my, my friends. Like it was all I could do. Right. Like when you feel this, you feel this, power against the people and you're like i don't care what happens to me i'm like i'm telling my daughters i'm like listen i have everything i need in case i'm tear gas but like if i end up in jail i end up in jail like th this is where i'm going to walk until i my feet bleed mm -hmm. because i'm not going to sit at home and cry and um so i'm hearing this song right do you hear the people sing lost in the valley of the night it is the music of a people who are climbing to the light for the wretched of the earth, there is a flame that never dies. Even the darkest night will end and the sun will rise. They will live again in freedom in the garden of the Lord. We will walk behind the plowshare. We will put away the sword. The chain will be broken and all men mm. will have their reward. Will you join in our crusade? Who will be strong and stand with me? Somewhere beyond the barricade is there a world you long to see. Do you hear the people sing? 
Say, do you hear the distant drums? It is the future that they bring mm. when tomorrow comes. I can listen to you talk all day. <laughs> um, <laughs> you you yeah. just have this way with words. And at one point I was tearing up and then now like my heart feels just like empowered. Um, is there anything else that you want to add before we before we wrap up? Yeah, you know, I think I'll go from Victor Hugo to um, this poet, the slam poet, Sonia Renee Taylor. I just recently read something that she said. And I think that, you know, the message that I have for anybody who just feels like they're losing hope, right? I think so many of, so many of my clients are just tired. Definitely my my African-American clients are just tired. You see this tiredness, this weariness. Um, I think, you know, anybody who's been sexually traumatized for the Me Too movement in our society today, we're just tired. And And I think that my message is rest when you need to, but get up and do hard things. Do the hard thing. Um, don't don't let the exhaustion keep you at home under covers. Write that letter, send that donation, mm-hmm. make that protest sign. Um, you know, do something, do the hard things. So Sonia Renee Taylor says she's talking about COVID and uh, this idea of going back to normal, and she says we will not go back to normal. Normal never was. Our pre-corona existence was not normal other than we normalized greed, inequity, exhaustion, depletion, Mm -hmm. extraction, disconnection, confusion, rage, hoarding, hate, and lack. We should not long to return, my friends. We are being given the opportunity to stitch a new garment, one that fits all of humanity and nature. Mm. Thank you so much for joining us, for sharing your wisdom and your life experiences. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Real Stories. The resources referenced by today's guest speaker will be included in the episode description. For more information about me, Dr. Megan Corredo, and my work with the Stories Trauma Narrative Intervention, please visit my website, www.storiesguide.com. Also, feel free to follow my story social media pages on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Remember that for every story of trauma and adversity, there is always a story of strength and resilience.